You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. It's a, it's a very kind of rich and diverse uh, stakeholder ecosystem. And each one of those stakeholders has a touch point with the rival. And we need to make sure because we're a brand new company and because you know what we're promoting and, and putting out in the world is a bit different than, than what's, what's there currently, that those interfaces are very positive and that they're considered and holistic and coherent across each, each one of those touch points. And that's my job is to, is to figure that out. Hello, I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of Mix. And that was Kwame Nanning talking there about what it means to be a chief experience officer at a company like Arrival. Now, Arrival is an interesting organization. I'm tempted to say that they're an electric vehicle company because that's what they've been in the headlines for in recent weeks. But as you'll hear in my chat with Kwame, I don't think that's really how they see themselves. And the ambitions that they have are rather wider than that. Those headlines are worth paying attention to. Uh, so, firstly, in January of this year, Arrival said that it had raised 100 million euros from Hyundai and Kia, big automotive manufacturers, uh, who also said that they were planning to work together with Arrival to use their platforms and their technologies. Now, that gives Arrival, a five year old company headquartered in London, a valuation upwards of a billion. Then, a couple of weeks after that, we heard that UPS was also investing in Arrival and was in fact ordering 10,000 delivery vehicles from them uh, with the option to double that order in the future. So if you're a regular listener to the show, you might remember Kwame from an earlier episode and an earlier role. Now, when I spoke to him before, back in May 2017, he was VP of Experience Design at McKinsey. I'll put a link to our previous discussion in the show notes. You can find those at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. And I can recommend checking it out because we talk quite a bit about the earlier stages of his career and how he came to be in this world of experience design in, in the first place. And much of Kwame's career has been agency side. I mean, he spent time with well-known companies uh, like Frog Design, Adaptive Path, uh, Native, before he took up that role at McKinsey. But Arrival is something a bit different. I mean, this is a, a client-side role, championing a joined-up approach to experience design across a, a really quite complex and multifaceted challenge. Now, some of it, of course, is about the, the virtual and the physical touch points of the vehicles that Arrival is working on. But as I found out during our chat, it goes deeper than that, you know, right across all of the different partners that Arrival is going to need to work with, uh, everything from like local authorities to the commercial customers, to make sure that overall experience that Arrival's multiple different end users are having is, is going to feel good for them. So I'll be back at the end, but for now, here's my chat with Kwame Nyaning, Chief Experience Officer at Arrival. I think you may actually be one of the very few people who's been on the MEX podcast twice. Well, it's definitely an honor. <laughs> <laughs> 
know, to, uh, to, to, to be able to spend this time with you because it's, it's always a good conversation, whether it's, whether it's on the podcast or one of the, uh, one of the dinners that, that, that you host or, you know, just catching up. So, well, I'm, I'm glad we got the, the chance to do it. And I guess it's probably something which will happen more frequently now as the podcast is maturing and, and coming of age. There'll probably be uh, more people that we feel the need to, to go back and revisit. And I guess one of the reasons why I was quite keen to have this catch up with you is that things have changed. You know, last time we spoke, you were at McKinsey and I don't know, perhaps that's a good place to start. What happened? Yeah, you know, it's it's been a, a, a really interesting journey because it, it's it's also the story of, of, of moving from the US to, to the UK and, and everything that's going on in, in, in the UK and becoming a bit more comfortable as a as somebody who's who's settling in London. And I think, you know, with, with Mackenzie, it was a great opportunity to establish uh, experience design as a as a practice within the firm. Uh, to, to build a team. We, we went from about five people to about like 23, 20, 24 people over my time there. And to ensure that it was a really diverse team, that we, we weren't just at the sort of, you know, like the mainly front end, uh, more kind of stylistic stuff, but we were also in the, in the, in the upstream, uh, strategic framing and, uh, you know, kind of value definition and, and value proposition creation, uh, and business building. So I, in, in the, in the little over three years that, that, that I was at McKinsey, I had a great opportunity to work with a lot of very bright people on some really challenging, challenging problems. I had primarily focused on financial services. So it was a, a, an area that I hadn't really had much, much time in. But got to get really intimate with it and uh, develop that as a as a, a core aspect of, of my practice. So it, it it was it was a matter of you know of time and looking at the future and, and in some ways you're either gonna stay at McKinsey and, and that's what's that's your career and, and that's what you're gonna do or you take all of you know the processes and the methodologies, the problem solving approaches, and you go out into the world and, and you see what you can do with it. And so for me, it was, it was the right time to step away from, from McKinsey and, and to, to try to figure out what I wanted to, to do with this new, this new toolkit uh, that I'd acquired. How did um, that time at McKinsey differ from where you'd been previously? Cause I, and obviously you've had a wide range of different experiences going into that, but immediately prior, as I recall, you were with Native, uh, which I guess would be more of a, uh, a boutique size of a firm, obviously a very well-respected design firm, but on a, a much smaller scale as an organization to McKinsey. How did it feel going into you know a, a much bigger organization like that, albeit one where design and, and the design process within the company was still something that was was growing and being formed? There were there were a lot of opportunities and there were a lot of challenges, uh, and the the opportunities were. A continuation of the opportunities that I had at Native, which were you, you're working with really big and well-established clients on some on on problems or uh, opportunities for them that were at the core of their business. The the difference is at Native we would kind of come in once the problem space had been relatively defined and there were economics or commercial concerns that had been wrapped around it and it had been turned into a brief, right? And so we would, we would be handed a brief and 
execute on that to the to the best of our abilities and there would be a deliverable at the end and then we'd go on to the next client whereas at McKinsey you're coming in to an established relationship uh because there's a senior partner there's a partner who have you know been servicing that client for for years and years and years and so you're there there oftentimes there is no brief there's just an issue that needs to be resolved and you're able to to come in in a, in a way that uh, is a lot more natural and and uh on a more on a, a peer kind of level and then apply the might and muscle of an organization like McKinsey, which is thousands and thousands of, of people who ha- are, are ex- have expertise across a, a, a wide range of, of, of domains, and really dig into to how you might want to solve that problem from from the very kind of beginning, working with top management. So discussing these issues with the CEO or the CIO or the chief innovation officer or, or whoever. So the exposure to the 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 end-to-end organization within McKinsey is, is much, much more uh, as opposed to with a, like an agency model like like Native. But you're also, I think, at, when I was at Native, I was maybe a bit more uh, closer to and understanding the importance of the end customer's needs as opposed to at McKinsey where there's you're exposed to you know like all the the complexity of the various different stakeholders that these large corporations or large organizations have to have to manage. So the solutions coming out of McKinsey were, were, were probably not as purely customer centric or user centric as some of the stuff I was doing at, at Native, but the stuff at Native was nowhere near as integrated into the business as the stuff I was doing at McKinsey. So, I, so those are probably the, the, the two trade-offs. Do you think that's a tension that's inherent in some of the ways in which design is being brought as a practice into these larger consultancy organizations. Because I think that's a really interesting point that you make there about uh, that when you're working in that sort of more boutique environment, you have the opportunity to do things which get really close to users as individuals and hopefully reflect that in the design. But sometimes it doesn't come with that opportunity to do it at the level which is truly strategic and organization-wide that comes through the sort of relationships that you get uh, when working in an organization like McKinsey. I mean, is that a tension which can be resolved or do you think that's something which is kind of fundamental to, to trying to bring design into a much larger professional services organization like that? I think, yeah, it, it, it can be resolved. It has, it has more to do with integrating or I, I think first developing an awareness of, of the importance within a large organization of their, of their end customers and, and of, of, the, of their experience. But at the same time, in agencies, d- designers are often and exclusively focusing on the end customer. And a lot of what comes out of the design effort uh, winds up not being operationally or organizationally feasible because they haven't been able to consider the full scope of the organization and what changes need to happen within the organization in order to deliver the intention of the, of the design that they've come up with. Yes, larger consultancies can definitely begin to and have begun to develop design at the, at, at the core with sort of customer or the end user uh, front and center. But I think what I'm also saying is that the design practice, especially at places like McKinsey, is beginning to expand and look at things like employee experience or stakeholder experience, using design as a tool for change management. So 
that the the awareness of the of the of the complexity of the problem space is i think driving a development of more, a more sophisticated application of design within places like like mckinsey so i don't know that the end result is to get mckinsey to a place where they're operating from the perspective of you know our primary concern should be the end the end customer i i, I think what what mckinsey is doing is it's influencing design and design is influencing mckinsey to the place where it's how do we create balanced solutions? How do we create solutions that work for the business so that the business can then implement them? Yeah. And I mean, perhaps it's one of those things where there isn't necessarily one right or wrong solution to this. You can well imagine Mm -hmm. there being agencies which are coming from a smaller, more boutique background that find they're able to scale up and start to do some of the things that uh, have traditionally been the preserve of the big professional services organizations. And likewise, you may well find that some of those big professional services organizations, as you say, they become influenced by some of those processes and find they're able to to emulate some of the things that those traditionally boutique agencies have been done. To, to my mind, it seems you know the more successful ones come down to as much about sort of people and culture and the happenstance of those things coming together in a good place uh, as they do which size uh, or which sort of end of that spectrum the firm is is coming from. But I, I'm curious about, you know, what happened immediately after McKinsey, before we get on to talking about what you're doing today, was it straight from McKinsey into this role or was there an interim period? No. So I, I, I uh, during my time at McKinsey and being exposed to so much opportunity and new and developing uh, technologies and emerging trends, I wanted to explore what I could do independent of, of any kind of uh, larger organization. So I, I, I started a, you know, you just go on company's house, you make a company. So I, <laughs> so I, I went on to company's house and, and uh, started a company called Dangerous. And the, the intent of, of Dangerous initially was to find emerging trends and uh, potential uh, areas where uh, specifically in fintech, where I could apply my knowledge and my network and my skills to developing new ventures. And so, yeah, so, you know, I spent about six months thinking about uh, how to stand up different sort of fintech ideas and, and value propositions. Uh, and, and while I was doing that, I was also working for a very large bank uh, as a consultant. So it was an opportunity to consult as a as an independent sort of loan operator within a large a large bank. And what they were wanting to do was create a new digital bank, purely digital uh, from, from, from end to end as a, as a retail proposition. So I helped them to develop the, the thinking and the strategy and, and the overall value proposition. And while I was doing that, I was trying to come up with that killer fintech value proposition. And it was about, you know, coming towards the end of, of my, my contract with the bank, it was, well, you know, do you want to re-up and do another six months or do I want to completely, you know, dive into standing up a, an, an actual startup? That was kind of the, 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 the two questions. And then all of a sudden this opportunity at arrival popped up and it was, you know, I had to choose between, between the three. And I, I knew I probably didn't want to continue at the bank just because ultimately, uh, while financial services is really interesting to me, I, I, I a lot there. I, I think that the future of financial services has very little to do with banking and, and a lot more to do with just people and, and behavior. So I, I felt that wasn't, uh, the best place for me at that time to be. As far as standing up my own startup, 
it's there's a there's what I realize is that there's a there's a big difference between sort of intention and wanting to do it and actually the the means and the and the the network to to pull it off and, and make it happen in a way that I would still be able to you know like eat <laughs> and, and 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 feed my family and spend time with my spend time with my kids and things like that so I decided you know arrival for what it is is probably one of the more interesting companies in the world right now and it's operating in a space that is critical to the the continuation of this human project uh, that that we're all that we're all engaged in so it wasn't a hard choice uh, to say yeah I, I definitely uh, come on board and, and really it, it didn't take much more than a conversation with the CEO to really get excited about the opportunities and uh, the developments that Arrival is, is a part of. So uh, Arrival has been in the news, certainly in the UK, a fair amount over the last two or three weeks, which I will link to some articles about that in the show notes so that people can go and have a look at some of the things which Arrival has been announcing, which are, are pretty exciting. But you know, for those listeners who aren't familiar with the name, and I, I must admit that until uh, I noticed that you'd joined the organization, I too hadn't really heard much about Arrival. What do they do and why is it important? Yeah, so we've uh, recently just come out of sort of stealth mode, which is why most folks haven't heard of Arrival, unless you're really following and paying attention to the electric vehicles uh, market. And Arrival is a technology company. And We've decided to make automobiles, but at our core, we're a technology company. And that's a very, it can sound sort of like marketing or sort of like brand positioning, uh, at a, at a superficial kind of level. But when you really begin to, to, to pull back what we're working on and, and look at, look at what we're doing and the ways in which we're, we're doing it, 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 it sort of becomes, it, it sort of becomes apparent why approaching the design and development of automobiles as a technology company, as opposed to, a traditional automotive company uh, is so revolutionary. So what Arrival is focused on is creating generation two electric vehicles. And what that means pretty much is that if you look, if, if you, if you look at all the current leaders in electric vehicle uh, production and manufacturing, Tesla, Rivian, a number of others, pretty much they're still using the same infrastructure processes, partnerships that traditional automotive manufacturers have been Manufacturers have been using for the past uh, 50 or 60 years. They, they, you know, Tesla is a great story, but at the same time, when it comes to, to producing and, and making their vehicles, they're, they're doing it in uh, a, a very traditional way. They, they went and bought uh, a, a factory that had been owned by, I think it was either Nissan or Toyota, um, outside of San Francisco with a very traditional assembly line process. They're still using sort of the, the tiered partnership model model of suppliers of components so that the, the vehicle itself is, is sort of a hodgepodge of different manufacturers, technologies and, and materials and components that, that, that go into the vehicle and are assembled uh, into some sort of coherent outcome as, as a specific model right, of, of, of a vehicle. Whereas at Arrival, what we're doing is we're saying that that's probably not the best way to do it. If you look at what technology can afford Right now in, in, in 2020, there are more interesting and more effective approaches to, 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 to building a car, uh, all the way from the ways in which we manufacture uh, and form our, our own uh, materials and the, the ways in which we design and, and, and assemble the, the vehicles, 
uh, and also the the way that we manufacture them uh, from from the standpoint of these this idea of micro factories uh, that have a much smaller footprint than a traditional factory and are much more modular and adaptable so that when you build one of these these micro factories, it doesn't just have to be for a specific uh, vehicle model or a class of vehicle. As approaching it from a, from a, from a technology standpoint, we're, we're able to look at these processes and question them. And that, that doesn't mean that we don't have a ton of traditional automotive people working, working for the company because, because we do. But what we're pushing for is a, a, a rethink in the ways in which, uh, these, these products are conceived and, uh, and manufactured so that instead of creating cars, we're creating devices on wheels. So when a startup like Arrival, comes to someone like you for this role of chief experience officer, how are they hoping that's going to fit into their overall vision? Because I mean, I think that's fascinating. From what you've described there, I think there are some pretty key differences. And from the bit of research that I've done about Arrival, it seems like quite a different model. But I'm, I'm curious as to you know how you end up defining your own role within that. And I suppose linked to that, the role that experience design plays in, in delivering on that overall vision? It's, it's, a, it's an interesting one because I'm, I'm still in the process of, of figuring it out. There's not really a clear-cut job spec that you can write for chief experience officer, especially at a place like Arrival that's growing and developing and uh, maturing right in front of your eyes. So what I would say to start off with is that whereas at McKinsey, it was about how do I introduce and develop an appreciation for design. How do I how do I be a, a a promoter and advocate for design thinking and and ways of applying design? At Arrival, a lot of that is already taken for granted, right? So you know, Arrival is has is and has always been a design led organization. Uh, and I think if you look at the vehicles uh, and a lot of the you know even even the website to to a certain extent, you you'd see a, a difference than your traditional you know automotive company. So my job here isn't necessarily to promote and advocate for design. My my job here is to ensure that design is intrinsically embedded in everything that we do and in every touch point that we have with the, the wide range of, of stakeholders that we uh, engage with. So if if you if if you think about what arrival is really is really doing, you know, like there's there's a number of sort of interfaces between Arrival, and if we take the van, Arrival and the people, sort of the fleet operators who, who, buy, who buy the vans, like a UPS. And then there's the driver who is in the, in the vehicle uh, on, a, on a, a day-by-day basis and is you know, using it and sort of ergonomically is, is interacting with it, as well as with the, the, the screen-based interface that's, that, that's in the vehicle. Then there's also all the software that the uh, that the, the fleet operator is needing to, to to interact with to understand the status of the vehicle and uh, all the telematics and, and and things like that 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 they need to pay attention to to understand you know charge level and uh, you know like health status and, and things like that. And then there's all the you know there's also the charging infrastructure. Uh, all the people that need to clean and, and, and maintain the, the, the vehicles and, and the, the roads and, you know, kind of the municipalities that are regulating and authorizing these vehicles to be on the road. So there's, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very kind of rich 
and diverse uh, stakeholder ecosystem. And each one of those stakeholders has a touch point with the rival. And we need to make sure because we're a brand new company and because, you know, what we're promoting and, and putting out in the world is a bit different than, than what's what's there currently, that those interfaces are very positive and that they're considered and holistic and coherent across each each one of those touch points. And that's my job is to is to figure that out. Are there previous projects, experiences that you have had that you're finding useful as a, a guide as to how you might manage all of those different touch points in a situation like Arrival? When I was a frog, we did a big body of of work for Disney World, where we developed the, the Magic Band as a uh, as a sort of service ecosystem that you could use to uh, as a ticket to you know when you get off the plane to identify yourself, get on the bus to the park, and then get off the, get off at the get off the bus at the park, and you can use it to tap in to your hotel or you know pay for a, a big Mickey Mouse doll or a, a bottle of Coke, or uh, it can be used to personalize a experience for you, you know, with, within the park by the staff. And that, and, and that instance, we had a number of different stakeholders. We had, you know, the bus operators, the, you know, the, the, the hotels that the, the folks were, were the, the guests were staying in, uh, all the, all the cast who were, you know, holding iPads that have all the visitor data on them so they can greet people by name and things like that. So, so that was, that's a, it's a very controlled environment though. And we don't necessarily have to worry about, whether or not the, the, the borough of, of Westminster is going to allow a specific charging mechanism to be placed on, on, on the curb uh, in order to allow our vans to, to charge, right? Like, so, so it's, it's when, when it's something like, something like Disney, it was very much about, you know, we want to bring the magic of Disney to life. And that was a shared intention. And, you know, a, it's a, a part of the overall value proposition of, of, of Disney World. Whereas what we're doing now, there's, you know, not everybody, shares our ambition to, to, to make electric vehicles more mainstream. You know, like we're, there's, there's a lot of conversations that need to be had with our customers and uh, with, with our customers, customers, you know, and all the, and all the different stakeholders that, that they interact with. So what we've done as a rival is we've taken an approach of, from this idea of rethinking how electric vehicles are made to also rethink how electric vehicles can be sold. And oftentimes when you think about an electric vehicle, you think about it being a premium product, that it's going to be more expensive than uh, its, its uh, fossil fuel equivalent. What our manufacturing and our design process allows us to do is offer our vehicles at the, you know, sort of an equivalent price to a fossil fuel vehicle. So we take price out of the, out of the equation when considering for, for a fleet manager whether or not they, they want to purchase one of, one of our vehicles. And then it comes down to the experience that that vehicle affords, both from a management and maintenance and operational standpoint, but also from a, a, a passenger and you know municipal uh, standpoint. And we feel that if we can produce these things at the right price and deliver a heightened and better experience, that that will lead to the mass adoption of electric vehicles. That's a pretty interestingly complex set of, of touch points and, and problems, if you like, to mm. to get your head around as a chief experience officer. And, I, and I'm wondering, you know, as you described that, how you start to structure 
a team to be able to to deliver on all of those and ensure that, as you say, design and, and the priority of good experience design ends up running through each of those touch points. Because a lot of them are quite different. You know, some of those things you're describing, there are essentially issues of, of relationships with all of the different stakeholders involved. Some of them potentially are quite technical deliveries of interfaces and UIs for different parts of that experience, be it on the vehicle or in the way that in which those vehicles are managed. You know, how do you start to to bring some structure to that and say, right, as an organization which certainly seems to be growing very rapidly, these are the key roles that we need to hire for. These are the key skills that we need to bring in to ensure that not only can we deal with all of those different touch points and delivering those, but we can do so in a way which feels like it's got a, a consistent design-led DNA through it. First and foremost, what I wanted to make sure, one of the one of the, the my criteria for taking on this role was that I report directly into uh, Dennis, our, our CEO, and that the role work horizontally across the, the organization so that it's it's a it's an integrative role as opposed to you know kind of a a siloed a, a siloed role or, or, or siloed function and that was you know that was eagerly uh, welcomed and 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 was you know like it was like sort of like yeah but of course we would do that like you know why why would why would we just want to have experience design be the siloed thing that maybe only interacts with you know software interfaces or or the or the or the HMI and, and things like that. It, it has to be across the entire organization. So that was a, a very important uh, consideration in, in joining. Why do you think that was? Was there something in in Dennis's background, a, a, an affinity for design, which uh, has made him more aware of those things? I think he's seen and, and he well be very, very difficult for me to to, <laughs> to suppose what's what's in Dennis's mind. Dennis Dennis has a, a very a, a very unique. And uh, expansive uh, mind. So I, I, I won't. I won't suppose to know that. But but what what I what, what I've been able to glean based on my, my my conversations with with him and also other other design leaders and technology leaders and product leaders in the organization is that it's just it's sort of understood that if you if you don't pay attention to the end experience, your your product is not complete. And 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 it's, it's like I said, it's it's sort of an intrinsic. Uh, at arrival, uh, I get that, that, that understanding, that understanding of the, the value of design. It's always been a design driven companies. Some of the, like, I think like the first hires that weren't either purely business or, 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 you know, kind of like auto, automotive technical folks were designers. Uh, so the, 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 you know, Jeremy Offer, who's a chief design officer is, uh, has been at the company for most of his existence. And has been, you know, developing and fostering and nurturing uh, that design perspective. So, as the company has grown, I think it's just an understanding that, you know, yes, of course, design needs to to go across more than just how we're designing the the, the form and the and the shape and the and the the, the screen-based interactions all the way through and 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 down into uh, the, the core aspects of, of the business. And so the, the, the way that I've, I've tried to, to outfit myself and prepare myself to, to do this is because it's a you know it's a pretty ambitious thing is to is to kind of break it up into into three different primary functions of of an experience office. So I've I've created something called an experience office and that experience office is is responsible for for brand and 
design uh, from like experience design from the standpoint of understanding uh, the service architecture and all the customer journeys and all the touch points and stakeholders that are that, that we're engaged with and uh, developing experience strategies to create positive uh, touch points uh, and interfaces with, with those stakeholders. But then also experience management, which is responsible for the integration of the design system and ex- experience system into the rest of the organization. And the, so the, I think brand for, you know, most people that are listening, like they'll understand, you know, brand strategy and, and everything that goes along with that and the brand guidelines and, you know, all the different things that, that help a rival to establish and maintain and deliver on its, its brand promise. The experience design function is something also I, I think is, is fairly understood. It's, it's probably, it's a mix of UX service design and graphic design, but the experience management bit I, I think is, is something that's new and is, is still, for me anyway, still coming into focus. Uh, but what it's, what it, what it's, it's, it's primarily wanting to do. And we have a, a lead, uh, for that function. And his, his background is much more operational and also based in artificial intelligence is to take the experience policies and governance and assets and ensure that they are applied appropriately throughout the organization. But then to also look at what, what's the resulting data that's coming from the, the development of, of those experiences and uh, finding ways to analyze that data and understand that data so they can be fed back into the business in a way that helps us to either improve our services or to improve the services that our, our, our customers are, are able to, to receive. I think that, that from, from, from that sort of like three part structure of, of an experience office, we we're, we're then able to not only think about it, concept it and, uh, prototype it and productionize it, but then we're also to ensure that it lives within the organization and becomes a part of, of the overall kind of service offering. Do you think about the, the legacy of that? I mean, as, as you're describing it, it strikes me that you know, Arrival is the sort of organization that is on the cusp of doing something quite big and transformational in a few different areas, but all around that concept of enhancing the experience of, of transport, really changing some of the fundamental things about how people and goods get mobile. And, you know, let's, let's say hypothetically that this is something which becomes, you know, much bigger than it is now. I think. The company currently, as I understand, is about 800 people and, you know, has recently uh, had some exciting news about the different investment partners that, that have come on board and the, the first customer wins that you've had. But, you know, let's imagine that we're talking 10, 20 years down the line and the organization has continued to thrive and has become one of the, the larger players in this new field of, of transport and, and mobility. Is that something that you have at the back of your mind as you start to lay those foundations of an experience office and how those things might need to grow to a much larger scale, firstly, and secondly, be things that, that endure beyond, you know, what you're doing in the day to day at the moment? Yeah. I mean, you know, one of, one of the first exercises that we've launched on since I've joined is, is not a, a 10 to 15 or, or 30 year forecast, but a 300 year forecast. To, to, to really take some time to think in much larger and longer time scales about the impact that arrival 
can have. Uh, as I said, you know, if we are we're if we are first a technology company, and we have started with electric vehicles. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's where we're going to end. And the and the competitive advantage that we have now might not necessarily be a competitive advantage, you know, uh, in in the future. So so how do from an experience standpoint, how do we begin to think about time and the future and uh, our ability to adapt to uh, to sort of the broader micro uh, macro trends that that are developing, as well as operate in the present tense on those sort of emerging uh, micro trends. And I, there was a, there's a, 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 a former client of mine, Richard Patelier from, uh, he's, he was at, at Ford and head of UX at, at Ford for a bit. Now he's at uh, Art Center in Pasadena. And he, he always brings up this idea of when you're thinking about automotive, you have to think in terms of yin and yang, right? There's sort of the, 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 the yin of the now, of you know things that have to be done in, in order to you know get the product out the door, and those are very pressing, and they're you know they're extremely sort of constrained, both from a a, a, a design and specification standpoint, but also from a, a time standpoint. They're oftentimes you know sort of on the critical path, but the 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 yang also needs to be supported, and that's that's the that's the future vision. That's the 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 the, the way out there kind of crazy stuff that provides you with the space and the oxygen uh, and the ambition to to you know like really plot your your the impact that you can have uh, over time. And and so that's that's what the experience office is 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 mainly trying to to balance sort of that the the near term demands of getting products out the door uh, while also you know opening up the aperture a bit to uh, look into the future to understand who, we're, who we need to be now in order to uh, achieve what what we think we might want to achieve in, in in the future so yeah when you talk about legacy and all of that kind of stuff there's it's definitely uh, I think a consideration but it's it's also a, a sense of I think broader purpose more than more than legacy that 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 drives us you know like the the reason that we're doing these things and the ways that we do them isn't because we want to impress or influence anybody anybody it's it's because dennis and everybody else are looking out at the world and we're seeing that there's a better way to, to do pretty much everything and 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 why why not start right now why not begin developing those those tools or processes uh and the skills to to start making this world a better place, you know, for, for, for people, but also for business, you know, and, and in doing that, you're, you're going to improve the, the quality of life on the planet overall. What's the, the part of that potential that excites you most personally? I mean, I remember from when we spoke on a previous episode of the podcast, I recall you had quite an interest around architecture and how people fit and, and relate to architecture. I remember you've also yourself had some pretty personal experience of, of transportation, as I recall. I think you told me <laughs> a story about how actually you got started uh, when you were um, a delivery driver yourself or a, a bike courier and um, ended up finding your first design role through that. You know, do those things influence the way you now think about this and, and, and what that potential is and, and what motivates you to want to be a, a part of that potential in the future? Yeah. 
I don't know. It's, it's, it, it's, it's all just sort of my life, you know? Um, and I've, I've been really fortunate to have, uh, an, an interesting, an interesting life, but my interests always seem to, to coincide with, you know, opportunities in the moment, which is, which is really cool. You know, that, that's, I think that's, I, I'm very thankful, very thankful for that. Yeah. I, you know, like I said, where arrival is, is, a, is a, you know, on its own is a, is a very special and transformative company, but taken within the broader context of what's going on in the world right now, where you have these mega cities popping up like daisies and it's obvious trends in, in which we see, you know, even more millions and millions of people moving into these cities and having to deal with developing societies in much closer proximity, much more condensed environments, the types of, of, of you know, opportunities and, and solutions that, 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 and that, that we're developing are going to be very meaningful within that context. So yes, architecture and, and like all the kind of uh, reading that I've, I've, I've done into design systems, you know, you know like the, I think we, we spoke about Christopher Alexander and sort of pattern languages and, and all that kind of stuff has definitely influenced me and I think made me a lot more sensitive to the impact and the influence that a company like Arrival can have on a developing megacity. So you have, you have cities like, you know, Toronto and Houston and Paris and, you know, brand new cities in, in the Middle East that are just popping up out of the desert that are expressing a, a, a real desire to transform. And they're not going to transform using traditional processes and, and traditional partners. The, 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 the partners that are going to lead to this transformation are going to be companies like Arrival. And, you know, we are also going to have to ensure that as we grow and as we develop, that we're pulling along and identifying partners uh, who we feel are, are complementary to, to our vision and, uh, and our, our way of thinking and, 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 uh, and developing these new ways of, of making things because that's what's going to have to to change otherwise you know i i think a lot of the things that we're seeing going on with the climate a lot of things that we're seeing going on with the environment are are going to to take their toll on us do you think people outside of the industry uh you know i guess the you know for, for want of a better term you know the, the average person on the street has, has fully grasped the significance that some of these changes could have. I mean, when I think about it in the context of that relationship with architecture, for instance, and just looking at my local area, you know, I, I live in a part of the world where there's quite a lot of history and a lot of buildings were designed at a time when cars simply didn't exist. And you can see the impact that the expansion of cars as the main mode of transportation has had on those kind of places that there are buildings now which simply weren't designed to be situated right next to a busy road which cars thunder up and down all day you know making noise and and creating emissions and when you project forward a little bit and imagine you know even a relatively modest adoption of vehicles which no longer emit fumes which make a great deal less noise than what we have currently. Even at this very local level around where I happen to live, you can see that there's a tremendous potential there for that to have a, a big impact on the way people live their lives. And, you know, I just wonder whether for, for you personally, you feel like people have managed to grasp all of those ramifications yet as to what may be possible once some of these changes start to take effect. I think it's it's sort of... 
well, for the for the for the random average person on the street, I would say that they understand it as a thing that's probably an irrit an irritant or an inconvenience or you know like something like new that's approaching on their 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 sort of traditional way of 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 interacting with the with the with a specific environment. I don't know that that, that very many of us, I don't even know that even I'm able to sort of like see the causality of the, the, the development of the automobile, the development of the petrochemical industry and, 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 and how all of those things, you know, like the, you know, the ability to, 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 to ship something from halfway of, of, across the world to another place on the other side of the world in, in less than 24 hours, like the, the, the impact that all that has, has, has had on us. I, I it's, it's the scale of it is, is so large and so complex that it's it's difficult to to really you know like grok it right but i i i do think that when and this goes back to some like the the sort of the foundational uh aspect of, of my practice which is around these design patterns and and the, the the power that a design pattern has to create a sense of rightness a sense of a, a sense of completeness uh, in in a in a moment or or in an interaction that when you when you find something that is positive when you when you engage with an environment or with an interface that is intentionally developed in, in a way to create a positive reaction in you uh, you feel positive you feel a bit more alive and what what I what I would hope for is that we as designers can spend a bit more time focusing on developing those types of, of interactions, those types of experiences in order to, and that's, that's how the world is going to be improved, right? The, the, we can, we can get rid of, rid of fossil fuel vehicles. We can stop flying as, as, as much as we do and, and, and reduce carbon footprints and, and all that, but we could still end up with a, a pretty crappy world, right? We can create all the, all, all the, 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 you know, the green buildings and, uh, smart cities that, that 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 we that we can possibly create, but if they're not designed to intentionally evoke a a, a positive experience, then you know, as I said earlier, like this this human project that we're on isn't really going to isn't going to improve. So yeah, that's you know that's why I joined Arrival. I joined Arrival because I I see an opportunity to have a large impact on the ways in which these new cities develop and 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 come to life. Well, and I think it sounds like a pretty strong raison d'etre for the role of the chief experience officer as well, as you say, in making sure all of those things join up and that as some of those technologies which can have a positive human benefit come on stream, there is a joining of those dots and a way of ensuring that that sort of good intention flows through all of the different elements of that experience. I guess one thing I'd like to ask just before we, we finish up with the conversation, Kwame, is to what degree you see an importance in, in sharing uh, as those design patterns start to emerge and they're developed by people within your teams, you know, how much you as an organization get by being part of a community and sharing those out um, with the rest of the world. Uh, and, you know, how much you feel that's something which is important to ensuring that those design patterns uh, do stick and do become things which have a, a positive influence within the world. Is that something that you, you think about as you, you think about how your team is going to build and operate in the future? Yeah, definitely. And that sort of speaks to, to the point that I made earlier about identifying the right partners to, to bring along with us. 
because you know it's the the, the world is made up of, of more than just commercial vehicles and as we continue to engage in these conversations with, with some of these large cities uh, and large industrial partners the the more folks that we bring out that we bring along from a uh, software standpoint as well as a physical infrastructure standpoint architects technical partners things like that and introduce our way of thinking uh, and the our, our processes the the richer sort of our output becomes I think on a on a, a broader level sharing our our sort of ethos and, and and our approach is something that will will occur over time I think it'll 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 have to part of it would just be by virtue of, of interacting with uh, with our vehicles and and, and with, the, with the things that, that we create and hopefully we'll be introducing patterns that can that can become iconic and that just you know sort of makes sense from both a, a, a design standpoint but also from you know like a, a commercial standpoint they just kind of become the de facto way of doing something uh, but then also yeah I, you know going out and and having conversations like this and codifying uh, our, our, our thinking when it makes you know sort of sort of sense once it's been developed and is, is in a form to, 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 to properly communicate, I, I think that, you know, it's definitely something that we, we're going to want to do. Well, I'm glad we've had the chance to catch up and talk about where you've got to with it so far. And I'm going to be looking forward as Arrival starts to emerge more from stealth and talks a bit more about what it's doing, catching up with it and, and keeping up to date with all of the developments. But thanks very much for taking the time to come back on the show and, and share some of what you've been up to. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Eric. I, I always enjoy our conversations. I, I walk away sort of a, a bit clearer <laughs> after uh, af- after talking with you. So I, I appreciate it. Well, that's the goal. And uh, stay in touch. You know, it'd be good to uh, catch up again and, and hear how this is all going. Most definitely. All right. Thank you very much. Well, there we go. Kwame Nanning there talking about what's involved and and what the potential might be for an organization with a really bold ambition to solve multiple parts of how people and things get mobile. It's such an interesting area right now. I, I hesitate to say automotive or vehicles are interesting because I'm just not sure that those categories necessarily feel fit for purpose anymore. They feel a bit like terminology from a passing age. And that's an interesting sign in of itself. Uh, The times are changing. And even with the amount of legacy infrastructure that we've got that's tied to that old architecture of mobility, it does start to feel like a part of life where change is on the cusp of accelerating pretty rapidly. If you want to hear more from Kwame, don't forget that there's that previous episode, number 33, from back in May 2017, which I recorded with him. Uh, There's a link to that in the show notes, and you can find those over at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section, uh, along with links to all of the other things that Kwame talked about in, in this discussion. So it's great to be back with this latest episode of the Mex podcast. And there's a whole archive of them now, 70 episodes from the last few years, which you can listen back to. And if you're enjoying them, do please have a think about anyone else you know who might like to check out an episode and just send them the link. And it's those kind of personal recommendations which are really the best way to introduce new people to our Mex community. 
It's also the way that I meet some of the most interesting guests who come on to chat about their careers and, and their design interests. So if there's someone that you know and you think they would make for a good conversation on the Mex podcast, you can recommend them. Uh, just send me an email. Design talk at mobileuserexperience.com is the address, and we can have a chat about getting them on the show. I'll be back soon with another episode, but for now, thanks for listening. Goodbye.